Okay, I think we'll go ahead and begin now. Today it's my distinct pleasure uh, to introduce a really close friend and valued mentor, Dr. Williamson Murray, or WIC as he is known to many of us. Uh, Dr. Murray is a senior uh, fellow at the Institute for Defense Analysis. In this role, he's worked on a number of really important assignments to include the Iraqi Perspectives Project, which has given us uh, an idea, actually a fairly definitive idea, of what happened to Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction, along with his uh, strategic plans for regime survival prior to the U.S. invasion in 2003, and a very good insight into the way those kind of regimes work. Uh, for over two decades, in, from 1977 to 1995, I guess a little less than two decades, Dr. Murray was a military historian here at uh, The Ohio State University. During his time here at Ohio State, he worked very closely with Dr. Alan Millett, who was the first holder of the General Raymond Ch Mason Chair of Military History. Together, they authored or co-authored a number of significant works in military history to include a really uh, great series on military effectiveness, military innovation in the interwar period, and their uh, operational history of World War II, a war to be won fighting the Second World War, which uh, I know at least uh, Professor Gil Martin and I use in our World War II class. Uh, for the last couple of years, Dr. Murray was the Distinguished Visiting Professor of Naval uh, History at the United States Naval Academy, in which he proceeded to teach them all about Grant's overland campaigns in the Civil War. <laughs> he has taught at a number of other institutions to include the U.S. Military Academy, all the war colleges, the London School of Economics, and the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. Today he joins us to discuss his uh, latest effort, uh, the Joint Operating Environment, which is probably the only document ever written by Joint Forces Command uh, that has been read by anyone outside of Joint Forces Command. Uh, in fact, I think it has more hits than any other document they've ever produced. I know my class has gotten the link that I sent to them. It is available online uh, if you just Google in Joint uh, Operating Environment and uh, Joint Forces Command. It'll come up as a PDF file. The Joe is intended to inform concept development and experimentation throughout the Department of Defense. It provides a perspective for about the next 25 years on future trends, shocks, and contexts, and their implications for future Joint Force commanders and other leaders in the national security field. The document is speculative in nature and does not suppose to predict what will happen in the next 25 years. I think we'll find from Dr. Murray's talk that, uh, in fact, that is fairly uh, impossible to predict what will happen other than that uh, it will be unexpected. Rather, it is intended to serve as a starting point for discussions about the future security environment at the operational level of war. I think we'll find Dr. Murray's talk a fascinating glimpse into the future through the lens of the past. Please join me in giving a warm Mershon welcome to Dr. Wick Murray. <clears throat> Thank you, Peter. Um, I'm going to start off, some of you have heard this story before, but not many, so um, I know Peter's heard it. Um, I, I, when I left Ohio State and went to uh, Washington, uh, uh, I thought that it would be fun to involve myself uh, uh, in the policy arena as a historian, which to a certain extent I have. Um, unfortunately, I think you have to understand that even by the standards of central Ohio, Washington is a completely ahistorical universe where history does not exist. Um, and I'm reminded of a wonderful skit that Peter Cook and Dudley Moore did called The Frog and the Peach, 
uh, two British comics, uh, both dead now, unfortunately. Comic geniuses, I think, is the best word for it. And the skit involved uh, Peter Cook uh, as the owner of a restaurant located in the middle of the Yorkshire bogs. Um, no difficulty with parking cars just in extracting them after uh, the dinner was over. Um, uh, and uh, Dudley Moore as a reporter from, a food critic from the London Times. And the discussion centered over this restaurant that Peter Cook had kept open for 25 years. Not exactly a, a success. Two main specialties of the house, frog a la pêche, a giant frog brought to your table with a peach in its mouth and boiling Cointreau poured over it, or pêche a la frog, a giant peach brought to your table with boiling Cointreau poured over it. When you cut it open, tadpoles <laughs> swam out. Well, at the end of the insanity that these two could gin up, like, is your wife a well woman? No, we lower her down, the well kicking and screaming to feed the frogs. Um, and it went on from there. At the end of it, Dudley Moore says, well, have you learned from your mistakes? And uh, this, I think, sums up the Washington, D.C. arena that I've been watching for 10 years or more. Um, Peter Cook thinks for a minute and he says, yes. He says, I have studied my mistakes from every point of view, gone over them again and again, and feel fully confident I can repeat every one of them. <laughs> well, <clears throat> let me uh, tell you how I got involved in this project, and then I'm going to go over um, uh, uh, what the document uh, argues and how it was structured, and then pretty much open it up for questions uh, um, uh, on both thinking about the future uh, and the importance of history. Um, about a year and a half ago, I got interested, uh, I got involved in a project dealing with the future of American strategy, which for some of us at the time at the Institute for Defense Analysis seemed to be non-existent, um, and wrote a paper which was published uh, by Orbis called um, History in the Future. Um, uh, I finished that paper up uh, in January of 2008, and at that time, um, a document called the Joint Operational Environment, which had just been published by Joint Forces Command, came to my attention. Uh, it was published just after General Jim Mattis had taken over Joint Forces Command. Let me say a few words about General Mattis, because a very interesting figure in terms of uh, and I would say unusual figure. This is a man who owns 7,000 books, most of them history books, most of which he's read. Um, the fact that he's not married, in fact, he's some circles known as the military monk, an accurate description in some ways, uh, an exceedingly sophisticated, intelligent man who believes, uh, in fact, he sent out an email uh, to uh, one of his uh, um, colleagues, a Marine colonel teaching at NDU, um, that you have two choices in the military profession. You can either learn by studying the past uh, or you can learn by filling body bags. And uh, unfortunately, in terms of the history profession, let me suggest to you that the normal procedure, which we followed in Iraq and will probably follow in Afghanistan, is we learn by filling body bags rather than learning from history. Um, the Joint Operational Environment document that came to my attention was a terrible document. The worst kind of futurology 
written by people who were looking for sort of what I'd call the chicken little, the sky is falling mentality. Um, among other sort of brilliant insights are that things like global warming has increased the number of earthquakes. I think that went through. Uh, um, no capacity to, if you will, um, sort of assemble, if you will, an argument and make an argument, just simply the world is going to hell in a handbasket. What, what I found, among other things, particularly uh, annoying about the document was this is a document that was supposed to talk about the environment in which America's military forces were going to be involved um, over the next 20 to 30 years. And the American military forces were not mentioned in the document until the last three pages of an 80-page document, nor was war mentioned in the document. I mean, I found that astonishing. So I sat down, and I wrote out about 13 major criticisms and hundreds of comments uh, in the margin, uh, my annoyance. And because I've been corresponding with General Mattis for a number of years, I sent him an email saying, your command has just published this really terrible document. Um, uh, and here's, here are the 12 major points, or 15, I forget which, that, that I think why this is such a terrible document. A day later, I got a call on <clears throat> a Saturday morning from General Mattis, and he said, we've got to talk about this document, um, because it's clear that only you and I are the only people who've bothered to read it. <laughs> Uh, um, which was probably to a certain extent true. Uh, but he said, why should we waste time in doing a document like this? And instead of being smart and saying, because um, you're right, General, we shouldn't waste time and forget it, I proceeded over the next 20 minutes to persuade him that if you're going to, to think about the kinds of military forces that we need over the next 25 years, um, and buying things like the Navy wants to buy a $14 billion carrier, stealth carrier, um, then, in fact, we should have some idea what the future is going to look like uh, for the kinds of military forces we're going to need. So after 20 minutes of discussions with him, he said, you're right, and you're going to write it. Um, and I had not foreseen that outcome. Um, uh, and so my March, April, May, June, July, and August were a shambles because, in fact, my vision that if I was going to write it, I was going to get this great team, a large number of people to help me write it, which would have been a catastrophe. General Mattis is a good, solid Scotsman in background, and he had no intention of giving me lots of money to do it. Um, I was going to write it um, with the help of, of, of a close friend and colleague at the Institute for Defense Analyses, uh, Jim Lacey, and we wrote it. I don't think we got, uh, I think we made all sorts of mistakes in this. There are lots of things that are wrong with it, but what we wrote was a coherent document that argues along, uh, I would argue, a fairly consistent path um, in, in thinking about the future. Uh, and in fact, of course, our, my sense of a document like this is that it should not tell people, because it can't, what the future is going to hold. I mean, we got a really big one wrong. We missed entirely the economic meltdown that has happened over the last uh, 
um, uh, five or six months. Uh, it went to press. Uh, it, we were finished in September, and it was only, I think, beginning to emerge how catastrophically uh, uh, mishandled had been the world's economy by banks and governments, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we had no organization, no plan, and we received no direction from General Mattis. Now, again, I think in terms of an unusual four-star general, because most four-star generals would uh, normally have given us every, every three or four days some piece of guidance if they thought this was a reasonably important document. Uh, and in fact, uh, um, General Mattis's uh, final comment when, when the final draft, uh, and he read through the final draft, uh, he told me, he said, uh, this is not the document I expected, but I like it anyway. Um, uh, in fact, we had not a clue what kind of document we were going to do. But what I think both Jim, who is a practicing historian as, as well as myself, what we both wa wanted to sort of underline was, if you will, how, how thinking about the past uh, should play a crucial role in thinking about the future. Um, and the document that we've done, whatever uh, its uh, faults, and I, as I said, I think there are a considerable number of faults in it, um, raises that issue. It is not simply a leap into the future. In fact, I think one of the ways that I argued uh, in uh, my piece on history and the future was that if you're going to understand the future, you absolutely have to understand the present. And you can't understand the present unless you understand the past and how you got to the present. Um, just leaping into the future, the way it seems to be most of the sort of futurologies out there, um, is a guaranteed way to get almost everything wrong. Um, the second sort of basic principle that we uh, brought forward is that this document was going to be not just about the future environment, the future military environment, how military forces would or would not, in terms of, of, of what the past suggested, um, fit into uh, uh, the world of the future. Uh, and again, none of this was predictive. Um, there are a fair number of quotes from Thucydides in here. Um, my sense as a historian is that nothing has changed since the cities in terms of human nature or the nature of war. Um, um, but um, um, we were not predictive. We did not predict what kind of wars would occur. We did not predict what kind of uh, military forces we would need. We did not predict what the economic future would look like. Instead, we tried to get in this document a sense of the ambiguities and uncertainties uh, um, that uh, the f future will present to policymakers, strategists, and, and military leaders uh, in the 21st century. Um, uh, and here, let me run through, uh, uh, if you will, uh, the documents, because the document itself, because that'll give you a sense of, of what we were trying to get at. The first section is called the constants. What will not change? Uh, and uh, there's a trick in here. Uh, the first part is perfectly straightforward. It is that the fundamental nature of war will not change. 
war will remain a nasty, brutal, horrible human occurrence that will unfortunately populate the 21st century just like it's populated the 20th century. Our hope, and it's only a hope, is that it will not involve the kind of catastrophic smash-ups of World War I or World War II. But the Cold War was not exactly a, a wonderful experience uh, for the world. Um, uh, so our hope, and it's only a hope, is that major conflict between great powers is a thing of the past. But the nature of war itself won't change. And the kind of, if you will, supercilious uh, approach that the American military used in the 1990s, um, the idea that somehow friction could be removed from the equation, somehow ambiguity could disappear, somehow technology would give us the potential to see and understand, and understand as Admiral Owen suggested, uh, the former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said, um, technology will allow us to see everything that and understand everything that occurs in a box 200 miles by 200 miles. Uh, and our very clear opening statement was uh, a challenge to that view, which I think will be relatively well uh, accepted, uh, will be accepted by virtually everybody in the Marine Corps and the Army, given their experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, may not be accepted by everybody in the Navy and the Air Force, given their removal to a considerable extent from those conflicts. Um, but our sense was making this statement up front, we were making an educational challenge um, so that when these wars are over, we will not slide back into this technological, if you will, technophilia, <laughs> this belief that technology will offer us this incredible um, uh, universe uh, of knowledge uh, uh, and understanding of what's actually happening. Um, very much Clausewitzian in the view, politics must drive war, and uh, um, I quoted deliberately uh, that Clausewitz's ironic statement that no statesman or general would enter a war without understanding the nature of the war they were embarking on. Uh, and uh, I quoted that deliberately because it's very clear the boys who went to war in 2003, not just politicians but military, too many military commanders as well, had no real sense of the kind of war we were embarking on. Now the second section in terms of the, content, uh, uh, the constants is titled <laughs> The Nature of Change. One of the constants is that we are living in a world of incredibly rapid change. We have lived in it for the last 25 years. We've adapted to it. But if you'll think back to the kind of world we lived in in 1984, actually when the document came out, 1983, that world, computers, I think maybe Mershon had five or six of them, um, I was not using a computer. I don't know whether you were using a computer yet, Dick, in 1983. Um, one, of the, one of the clear things that none of you would understand, uh, you young people here, is that computers regularly trashed themselves, um, died, collapsed, zilch, killed everything in them. Uh, um, that's why I didn't trust them. I still continue to write stuff out uh, um, until uh, I left Ohio State. Well, maybe the last couple of years I started to type stuff. Um, 
but again, if you think through the sort of technological changes that have come there, um, Jim Lacey told me a story. In, in 2001, he wrote an article for Parameters, the Army magazine, which he suggested that one of the things the Army was going to have to face in the future was that cell phones were going to have the capacity to take pictures on the battlefield and transform them back uh, to uh, the states or to whoever was receiving them. The article was turned down because, as the editor said, that's an impossibility. Um, if you look at the strategic uh, framework that the Mershon Center and various people working uh, here were working under, um, this was the height of the Cold War. Um, CENTCOM had, not, uh, had only barely been created. The idea that American forces would wage not one but two wars against Iraq would have seemed absolutely inconceivable to the people uh, who worked at the Mershon uh, Center in 1983. We have lived through incredible changes over the last 25 years. And there is no reason not to expect that over the next 25 years we will see changes any less drastic or any less, um, and this goes politically, strategically, um, technologically, and as we're seeing right now, maybe economically. Um, two lesser sections uh, um, at the end of it, uh, one on the challenge of disruptions. Our sense as historians was that one of the real problems um, in terms of thinking about the hum uh, future is that we human beings like to think in terms of continuities. And disruptions, drastic disruptions like 1989-1990 in which the Soviet Union literally disappeared. And again, for many of you, you I see out here students who were kindergarten then, um, uh, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union was truly an earth-shaking event, which we've kind of now forgotten how drastic a change it was. I'm going to Poland to give a keynote speech on the 70th anniversary of the starting of World War II in Warsaw. Inconceivable in 1984 that, that I would have received such an invitation. Inconceivable, no matter how great a historian I was. Um, the other... Or, or not. <laughs> um, uh, the final thing was, uh, um, this, is, this is one of Wick Murray's um, pet rocks, um, two paragraphs on, on grand strategy that uh, uh, Joint Force Commanders uh, um, need to be aware of grand strategy and strategic issues, even if they're not directly responsible for them, they are certainly should be involved in the debate about them. Um, in a fashion, this was, of course, a direct criticism of Tommy Franks and the unwillingness of senior American military leaders in 2003 uh, to criticize, and 2002, uh, the whole basis of what, in retrospect, was a bizarrely out-of-whack uh, uh, um, uh, strategic and po political approach to the Iraq problem. The second part uh, of uh, the paper... Um, looked at trends influencing uh, uh, the world's security. Some of these are completely predictable. The one that's obviously predictable is demographics, because this year has given 
You know, the kids born this year, 25 years from now, will largely be out there influencing the demographics. And for the most part, um, the demographics um, raise some very interesting issues uh, in terms of what kind of world we're going to look like and what kind, who are the great powers going to be and how are they going to interrelate. Uh, the demographics of places like Japan and Europe are astonishing in terms of uh, uh, the Japanese one uh, uh, in particular in terms of uh, what appears to be sort of a disappearance of uh, of, of youth uh, in the culture. Uh, on the same thing happen, is happening in Russia, uh, but slight, for slightly different reason, that the Russians seem to be killing each other off uh, by drinking as much vodka as they can uh, uh, and uh, hydraulic fluid if they can't get a hold of vodka. Um, Russia's population, the male um, uh, life expectancy, I think, is, is down. Uh, with uh, places like uh, Central Africa's uh, life expectancy, which is, uh, again, says a great deal about um, where Russia will be 25 years from now, um, whatever Putin and his crew think. Uh, on the other hand, of course, we have demographics uh, um, in the Islamic world that are truly astonishing. 46% of Yemen's population um, uh, is under uh, uh, 15 uh, and over uh, 50, well over 50% of Egypt's population is under uh, the age of 25. Um, may not translate into anything, but we do have reason to expect that places with population bulges and overpopulation and rising expectations oftentimes result in revolution and war. In uh, looking, for example, uh, uh, at uh, the Middle East, CENTCOM's focus, for obvious reasons, is almost entirely uh, on Afghanistan and Iraq. I would suggest that uh, places like uh, Egypt, with its youth population bulge, are places that are probably going to be more important and, and, and receive more focus from the United States in the next 25 years, unfortunately not necessarily in a positive way. Um, our, our predictions in terms of the global economy and economics um, uh, were not meant to be predictions. They were just simply showed what the trends are. Uh, and extrapolating the trends, uh, for example, in terms of globalization, suggested uh, and underlined that uh, um, the world uh, uh, should... Uh, um, uh, if, if the trends uh, had continued the way they were last summer, uh, that the world was going to have a, a huge energy crunch early in the, in the, in the period uh, uh, between uh, 2018 and 2022, uh, 2023. Um, we did say, being uh, very careful uh, sort of to hedge our bets, that, of course, there was the alternative of worldwide economic collapse, which would remove the energy problem, but might, uh, given what happened in the 1930s with the rise of Nazi Germany and, and Japan, create other problems. Um, and, uh, again, having hedged our bets, we'll be right either way. Um, climate change and natural disaster. Um, there have been huge sections of uh, that in the, uh, in the last joint operational environment. Uh, we're both curmudgeons um, uh, and decided that, in fact, 
it doesn't matter whether the climate gets hotter or colder, there will be war, and, and that's the issue that should fo Joint Force Commanders should, uh, should focus on. Um, uh, they got enough on their plate w with that problem rather than uh, uh, just thinking about uh, um, uh, global warming. Contextual world was the third part, and here we discussed issues such as um, competition among great powers. Uh, and here, I think for Americans, there's a very important lesson uh, that no matter how well or how badly we do, the American age, the Pax Americana, has come to a very quick halt. And the United States will confront a world in which it may not be dealing with exact equals. It will be dealing, though, with powers who are, have a, a f far more independence and far more economic power than was the case um, uh, over the last 60 or 70 years. I would argue that economically the United States has d d dominated the world from 1915, uh, uh, 1916 uh, um, through uh, uh, to the recent present, uh, and certainly strategically from 1941 on. Um, those days, I think, are coming to an end, which has important consequences for how the United States needs to address the international environment. And whether one talks about uh, the United Nations or um, uh, putative allies, uh, the sort of attitude that Rumsfeld and company had uh, in 2001, 2002, President Bush, um, uh, si simply cannot exist the idea that somehow the United States didn't need allies. That is gone. We looked at potential challenges and threats. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, we found that uh, sort of, and again, there are a lot of people in Washington that are pushing China as the emerging great threat to the United States. Um, we found that uh, um, illogical uh, and silly for a number of reasons. Um, the first is that if the Chinese put all of their effort into building up uh, their military power, they really couldn't challenge us for 20 or 30 years, which is beyond our lifespan. We'd also see it coming. But in fact, what the Chinese seem to be doing is a much more nuanced and careful and intelligent strategy of building up their economic and political power um, to the point where uh, um, uh, it may not even be possible for the United States to challenge them. Uh, and in particular, um, what I found very interesting is the open-ended discussion in China of the United States and its military forces. There is, in fact, apparently a huge internet, internet debate occurring in China right now with tens of thousands of people, well, maybe over 10,000 was the estimate we got, Chinese involved in arguing about um, what China's future strategic course should be. And this is encouraged by the government, and the government has not clamped down on any sort of official opinion, which is, again, even more interesting, because we have this view of China sort of the monolithic party trying to drive the train. The other thing we found very interesting in looking at China, which I think is both positive and negative, is that the Chinese have been studying us and studying the history of the West very carefully. In fact, uh, not only uh, have been, there been a significant, uh, has there been a significant effort to examine, if you will, the history of the last 200 years of the West 
The rise and fall of great powers has interested the Chinese, and the problems involved in the emergence of new great powers, and guess who they focused on? The Germans! And the conclusion they drew, which is quite intelligent, was whatever you do, don't do it the way the Germans did it. And so the worst thing, very clearly from their point of view, would be to challenge the United States now uh, in military sense. Um, the other part of it is a really major effort to understand um, the United States in the widest sort of way. Uh, in fact, I found a really fascinating figure that Bob Scales gave me in 2000. Now I think it means a great deal more. And my guess is it's still probably pretty true, is that in, in 1999, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, which includes Air Force and Navy as well, uh, had more of its officers in American graduate schools than the American services had in American graduate schools. What that suggests to me is a real desire to understand the United States. And oh, by the way, looking at the past as a historian, one of the huge advantages we had in World War I, World War II, and the Cold War is we understood our opponents far better than they understood us. I would suggest to you that in the 21st century, if we manage to make China an opponent, or they become an opponent, they will understand us very well we will not understand them at all. Um, after China, we looked at a few other countries. We looked at Russia, um, partially because of their exceedingly bad behavior last summer um, and the pretensions that the Putin administration, uh, uh, sort of the Putin group seems to be a, a, a group, a club of KGB agents uh, acting in bad films. I mean, the... Um, the performance uh, uh, that they, uh, where they killed that uh, individual a year ago this last November using radioactive material that was traceable through the airliners and various London hotels, including the place where the guy that got poisoned, um, uh, indicates, uh, I think, a level of ham-handedness. Um, but also um, mixed in with um, the uh, sort of attitudes uh, that the Russians display is a deep sense of paranoia, a deep sense of, and I think this is historically driven, a sense that the world is against them, um, a sense that, uh, which we don't have except maybe Southerners. Um, again, the world is against us because look at our history. The Mongols visited us, and then the Swedes visited us, and then the French visited us, and then the Germans visited us twice, uh, uh, and uh, there's a sense, I think, that we, we just don't pay any attention to because we're Americans and, and what happened two years ago doesn't matter. A sense of, if you will, the myths of history hanging around uh, um, in, uh, uh, in how the, uh, uh, the Russians uh, view uh, the world. Um, let me skip over the, uh, uh, the contextual world to uh, sort of raise... Uh, a, another um, uh, issue uh, here, which is uh, um, in terms of nations, there's a tendency in the United States uh, political science world um, and among historians to look at the problem of failing states. That's a popular word out there. And 
Our sense was that if you look at failing states, they're the same guys who were failing 10, 20 years ago, and we ain't going to fix it. Um, we can just maybe keep it bubbling along. What we saw, and there isn't much literature on this, uh, either by historians or by um, um, political scientists, what I'd call the collapse of states, Yugoslavia being a very good example, the sudden surprising collapse of Yugoslavia. It's well worth remembering that in 1984, the Winter Olympics were held in Sarajevo. Six years later, we had the Serbs holding their own version of Winter Olympics uh, with uh, T-62s and, and various tanks. We wrote, in, and, and, and actually there's a funny bottom line to this, we wrote that out there, um, there was some states that could collapse that would present enormous strategic problems, not just to the United States, but to the world. And let me give you some of the candidates. Obviously, Pakistan. We only mentioned two, actually. Pakistan and then Mexico. Well, the Mexican one has caused huge furor in Mexico um, that the U.S. government thinks they're collapsing. No, we're not the U.S. government. It's just two guys riding for Joint Forces Command. But if you look at the fact that in the border areas are uh, along the United States, more Mexicans have been killed every year at very high levels, many of them, than, than Iraqis are killed in Iraq. Maybe, maybe we've got a sense that something is going wrong very badly to the south of us that will have huge strategic implications that occur. Um, there's some other obvious candidates for uh, when I went and talked to the Japanese in December about the Joe. Um, they said, oh, you left out North Korea, and what a nightmare that would be for us. Well, it would, might be for everybody if they exploded a few bombs on their way out uh, the door. Nigeria. There are a number of cases out there, and this is where I think history is so important, because it doesn't tell us who or when or where, but it does say when occurrences like this happen, the disturbance and perturbations in the international environment are extreme as what happened in Yugoslavia. That's the value of history. It's not telling you what the answer is. It's telling you that you better think about the problem, not in specific terms, but in uh, partial terms. Then <coughs> um, the last <coughs> um, part four uh, the last big section was on the implications for the joint force, uh, which was a direct discussion of about five or six pages, far longer than in earlier versions of this document. Um, historically oriented, but also what are the implications for the joint force? What kind of military operations? What, what we emphasized is the kind of argument going on within the U.S. military today that we should only need to prepare for one kind of war, major conventional war, um, major technological war against the Chinese, or major war, um, uh, major insurgencies that we have to uh, fight against. My sense is that, in fact, the United States confronts the most difficult strategic environment it has ever confronted in its history. And we have no way of predicting how, when, where, or for what purposes our military forces are going to be used, or what kind of diplomacy or deterrence is, is capable of preventing war by thinking about the possibilities ahead of time. Um, 
And the consequences, I think, in terms of the challenge to the American military is that it requires a very different kind of preparation of senior officers than has been the tradition in the past. We have had a few exceptional officers uh, produ produced in the past. Uh, think of Tony Zinni, obviously General Mattis, uh, General Petraeus. Um, we can't afford to just have a few of these guys. We have got to have a senior military leadership which can provide the kind of advice that a Petraeus or a Mattis would have provided in 2002 and 2003, as opposed to Tommy Franks, who very clearly followed in the, uh, in the footsteps of William Westmoreland, who never read a book in his life. That requires also an adaptable military. And there's a price to be paid for an adaptable military, because an adaptable military is never going to be fully ready for the war that it confronts. Um, and yet, of course, if we look at history, what history would suggest is that um, um, that's always been the case. Uh, and in fact, I would argue that the major, the greatest challenge facing military organizations in the 20th century um, was lay in the fact that they were never ready for the war um, that they fought, which is not surprising from my point of view as a historian. But in fact, they took far too long to adapt to the actual conditions they confronted. I would suggest to you that the problem, very simply put, is that military organizations take into the next war a vision of what they think war is going to be like, about, conducted. And invariably, as Michael Howard has suggested, they get it wrong. The effective military organizations adapt quickly to the actual conditions they confront. The less effective ones with less effective military leaders take far longer, and the price is paid in body bags. I got an uh, email from Colonel Peter Mansour when he returned from Iraq in, in uh, fall of 2004 to Germany, which very simply said um, that my, the battalion commanders in Iraq in 2003 to summer 2004, and their troops understood very quickly what was going on on the ground. He said most of the brigade commanders did not, and very few of the generals. In fact, my colleague Carl Lowe, who went over and interviewed them, told me when he came back only two of the generals, Petraeus and Mattis, understood what was happening on the street. That was obvious to the troops who were on the street, but the institutions were incapable uh, of passing that information up, and the generals were disinterested in finding out what was actually happening. And this led, uh, again, pet rocks. For those of you who've known me through my career, um, I have been a proponent of professional military education as key to the future. Uh, and there is a section at the very end of the document saying, we better fix that, and we better ensure that the kinds of people we are promoting, although the document didn't say that, that's clearly the implication, that the um, officers that we promote are like Petraeus and Mattis, more like Petraeus and Mattis, and less like Tommy Franks. And with that, let me conclude, and uh, I've talked long enough, and take whatever questions you have. Um, don't buy bank stocks, I figured that one out. <laughs> Peter. Uh, I'll take the opportunity to ask the first question. In military innovation in the interwar period, uh, 
you write that, and you and Alan both write, that the most effective innovation is the innovation that's directed at a specific enemy and a specific yeah. problem. You look at the British with the integrated air defense system in the late 30s, for instance, against the German bombers. How do you square that stipulation against what you just said, that uh, we have to prepare for a lot of things and it's futures unknowable and well, I, I square it by simply saying we're going to get guaranteed we're going to get it wrong. I mean, Fighter Command got it right. Brilliant innovations in the interwar period got it right just precisely for that reason. Guaranteed we're going to get it wrong, and it's the crucial issue is how quickly we adapt to the actual conditions that we confront. But are there any problems out there now that you would say we need to direct some intellectual energy and some R&D against this specific problem? Uh, myself and others, for instance, have said, yeah, I, again, I think the issue isn't technology. The issue is, uh, uh, um, uh, in terms of counterinsurgency, is I think what we're discovering uh, in Afghanistan, uh, and it's a wonderful book, I can't think of the title of it, by Rory Stewart, one of those sort of wacko Brits or Scots who sort of believe in walking across. Rory Stewart walked across Afghanistan uh, starting, excuse me? Uh, and then he also did a wonderful book, which I haven't read yet, but I'm going to get a hold of uh, The Prince of the Marshes on his experiences in Basra, um, walked across Afghanistan. And I, I think that the problem is that, is that Iraq and its counterinsurgency looks nothing like Iraq, excuse me, like Afghanistan in many ways. And, and so the issue then comes down to, if you will, the education of officers beginning early in their careers, much earlier than is occurring now, and I mean education, not training, so that they can, they can understand and adapt to the fact that every counterinsurgency is going to be different from the previous one. I mean, preparing for counterinsurgency warfare the way the Pentagon would like to do it would be a nice little set of technological and training devices when, in fact, the counterinsurgency's requirements of, shall we say, Mexico would look quite, particularly given the Mexican memory that the United States stole a third of their territory, um, would look very different than counterinsurgency in Egypt or Afghanistan or et cetera. And I think this is, is the kind of historical and cultural basis in the American mi military has got to be fundamentally uh, changed. Um, I mean, you got, goodness grace, gracious, uh, this doesn't have much to do with your question, but... Um, uh, Air Force Magazine just had an article in which the editor has accused uh, General Mattis of certain sins um, and cites evidence from the uh, Gulf War in which he gets it all wrong. The Air Force can't even remember what it did in the Gulf War. Something wrong with this picture. I thought about writing the magazine, but it wouldn't, they wouldn't publish it. But I am going to put him in a footnote. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, they haven't come there, but they could. No, I mean, we're uh, focused on Afghanistan and Iraq. And we can only do one thing at a time. 
it's uh, poor Gerald Ford who got accused of not being able to walk and chew gum. I mean, actually, he could. Uh, I'm quite a good athlete in many ways. Um, no, but, I mean, Washington can only do one thing at a time. And actually, Afghanistan is kind of being pushed off now because we've got an economic situation which truly takes one's breath away in terms of performance of America's, well, the world's bankers, because the American bankers sold these incredibly stupid mortgages to the whole world. Yeah, Carol. Um, I think um, no NATO is you got 21 countries with a veto so you, you can't possibly but but again we did very well with NATO when it really mattered to us in the Cold War when NATO was a crucial piece in the puzzle the problem now is that we forgot about the Cold War since 1990-91 and that, that kind of connection with allies um, uh, has been lost now what I think we're going to, which makes, this is, this is an even bigger challenge. NATO, we, we knew during the whole Cold War. We still know it to a considerable extent because we're uh, deeply involved in it. Um, but what's really going to matter to us in the 21st century coalitions of, of the willing, of putting together groups who are willing to participate with us. And um, uh, in terms of our efforts in, in Iraq, um, a few powers in NATO actually have stood up, the Brits, uh, the Dutch uh, in Afghanistan, the Canadians in Afghanistan, a magnificent performance. And I think we still have this mentality in Washington that it's us and, you know, it's nice if you allies come along, but you're really not terribly important. In the 1990s, the argument was used that the allies aren't going to be important because they won't have any of this wonderful technology that we have that's going to enable us to pr predict everything and see everything uh, 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 in the battle space. Um, and yet, of course, in terms of the kinds of wars we've been involved, people like the Canadians uh, and the Dutch have proved to be incredibly useful. And in some ways, because the, their continuities, um, we ship people to Iraq and then they come back to the States and then they go to Afghanistan. And they, if they go back to Iraq, they don't go back to the same place. Um, the Canadians have been in the same place. The Dutch have been in the same place. Um, the French are joining up. I mean, very interesting to see where Sarkozy is, is going. The Germans, of course, this is our great success from our World War II policy. The Germans have decided that they're not going to participate in any wars where Germans get killed. Somewhat ironic, given their history of the first half of the 20th century. Um, but also understandable, because they've now realized that the Poles will die almost to the last man to keep the Russians from ever visiting them again. So Germany is in a situation it, 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 for the first time, feels completely protected. And, and we've managed to convince them all they should be all good little pacifists. And so don't count. This is why, again, I think the issue is, is, is firm alliances are nice, but in fact um, they aren't going to work unless there's a real union of, of interests. And that's where I think Japan, which doesn't want a war with China, but sure wants the United States' influence in the region to keep the Chinese uh, from telling the Japanese to do what they should do, which is to rewrite their history books. And anybody who's been to, to, to Japan knows that in, in spades. 
But alliances are going to require far more adaptability uh, and maybe even, oh my goodness, language ability. Ooh, boy, we've got to have done well on that one, haven't we? Austin, you... Uh, well, given what you just said, are some other militaries or friendly to us more adaptable than we are in terms of their education, their background? No. Well, it depends. Yeah, it depends where, where and what you're doing. Um, uh, the French are extraordinarily good in Africa because their military has been involved in French equatorial Africa, so they know it inside out. Now, whether that's always been good for the locals is another matter. But uh, the French have a, have a really solid a horn of Africa in terms of their Djibouti and their influences there. They, they understand certain regions much better than we do. Um, and so, therefore, working with them in those areas is crucial. Uh, um, uh, but the problem is, is, that, is that we still have, to a considerable extent, militaries that are framed by the Industrial Revolution in terms of education. Everybody's on the same track. Everybody, you know, marches along. And if you look, of course, in terms of European traditions, I'm just reading a wonderful book on Afghanistan called Khyber, popular book sold in the late 50s uh, uh, on, on the difficulties that the Brits had uh, in, with Afghanistan, which has always been a problem, always been, because the natives there, Alexander the Great found them a huge problem because the natives like to kill each other unless somebody else from the outside comes in and then they want to kill the outsider. Um, uh, but the Brits in the 19th century had a capacity to send people out to, to become experts on the Pashtuns or experts on uh, the various tribes uh, on the frontier, uh, and they spent their whole career out there. Our problem is, and it's underlined by um, uh, sort of a small story, but I think this is typical, um, when we invaded uh, um, um, uh, Afghanistan, or liberated, depending upon your point of view, uh, in 2001, a special forces team ran one of the uh, warlords in the north who fell in love with them. And in fact, they had huge influence over this guy because not only could they call in airplanes, they also could call in food supplies, get his, his uh, soldiers who'd been wounded, uh, airlifted out. And then in, in January of 2004, it's time for the commander of the team to go to army school. And so, poof, out he goes. And uh, the team is, a poof, out they goes, and another team comes in. I mean, this is inconceivable to the British, but it's an industrialized approach to officers' careers, that they must follow this straight track, and any deviation, any deviation, including um, Pete almost ruined his army career by coming here and teaching West Point. And in fact, uh, all the various branches of the army, and I think we probably have some army guys here, you've all been told, you're wrecking your army career. Um, um, not always true, but you know there is H.R. McMaster out there, and there are a few guys like Don Holder and Petraeus. But uh, the Army doesn't want to see people get off these nice little neat tracks. Uh, and in the 21st century, we can't afford that. Um, GM, I think the best way to put it, um, what, are the, what is the American company that is still using the industrial age personnel policies? And the answer is GM. And look at how successful they've been. Um, our military is still, uh, GM's tried to change. Our military has not tried to change the personnel systems. And it won't until somebody gets really interested in the problem at the highest level, namely the president. And the problem here is, is that it's a nightmare. Who do you grandfather in? How do you change it? What kind of laws? 
uh, who's included, who's not included, how do you judge what kind of officers you want to have. And, and nobody wants to answer those questions because they're not sexy. No, by the way, when do, you, when do you see the results? You see the results 20 years from now. <laughs> Most of the people making these decisions, like Mr. Gates, who I admire a great deal, um, will be dead by then. Austin. spoke the languages, Farsi and Arabic, et cetera, et cetera, who they could draw on to use for, you know, counterintelligence operations. And uh, is, there, is there any thinking along those lines with regard to the United States? Because we obviously are so different from just about any country I can think of yeah. in terms of who we are as a people. I think our huge success, and let me echo it, is our huge success is the capacity to turn virtually everybody who comes to the United States into, quote, an American. Um, uh, and, but, but again, it's a very interesting thing in terms of American demographics, which is why Mexico is so important. The demographics right now suggest that 20 years from now, every state will have at least 15% Hispanic, and at least, I think it's 20 or 22, will have 40% and above, or above Hispanic. And, and the, so, so demographics are huge. Um, in, in terms of the northward flow of, of, um, uh, of Hispanics into the United States, which actually is a, is a huge advantage to us if it's used right. Um, uh, um, uh, the problem uh, is that the New York City Police Department is showing far more intelligence than the CIA, which clearly doesn't believe that language, uh, languages are important or that um, assigning a, 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 a individuals to one area is a good thing. We had a, at IDA a wonderful woman uh, who left us to go to work for the CIA and quit after two years, excuse me, DIA, but same kind of approach. Um, in, in the two years she was gone, she, she was initially assigned to Sri Lanka um, where she asked, could I go out and see what's actually going on? No, we don't have the money. It's not needed for you. You can just, you can just read it, and it's not very important uh, either. Uh, as if one of the major ter major terrorist insurgencies in the world was not occurring in Sri Lanka, so we might want to learn what was going on there. But no, not in the interest of DIA. And then having spent a year and a half there, she was immediately transferred in 2001 to the Afghanistan desk, where she knew nothing, uh, had no preparation, no background, uh, simply because we're going to surge to that area. Uh, intelligence assets. <laughs> What, what intelligence asset is there if you don't know anything about the history, language, culture, um, and, and political framework within which the area you're going to... Again, I would argue whatever difficulties the U.S. government has, and it has many, Homeland Security being one of them, um, nothing beats the problems the intelligence agencies have. And I think the worst mistake we made at the end of the Cold War was not doing away with all of them. Yes? Well, we didn't come up with what's going to happen. We just, uh, we just suggested that you better use history to think about the kinds of problems you're going to confront in the future. Um, look, the best history can do for you is to suggest what kinds of questions you need to ask. 
And the problem is that in Washington, that's needless because everybody knows the answer already. They don't know the question. They don't know how we got there, but they know the answer. More money in a bigger budget. More money in a bigger budget. Yep. Hey, makes sense to me. Yeah, Stephen. Yeah, well, you know, I've been at this for 25 years. Yes. Yeah. But I run into academic historians who say historians have no business thinking about the future. It's not our territory. How do you answer that? I answered very very easily. It's it's a com- completely irresponsible position to take because it turns the, the the entire framework of thinking about the future over to really irresponsible people. Uh, and if they uh, <laughs> why are you looking at no, no, I didn't look at Rick Herman. <laughs> I didn't look at Rick Herman. <laughs> um, you know, again, if you've run into it in, in, in business and corporations, it's nothing like the opposition to it in terms of the Washington arena, where there are just a very, very few, Ike Skelton being one of them, uh, who sort of wages uh, this evil plot to, to try and force uh, the, uh, uh, the um, war colleges and staff colleges actually to study past wars. Well, I'll comment that I have done forecasts for Joint Chiefs and for various branches of the intelligence community. And every time I have one of those experiences, I can't wait to get back to the corporate world. Because the corporate world understands that if, um, well, as one executive said to me, why do I have to think about the future? And I said, you don't have to, as long as you're willing to accept whatever happens. <laughs> In business, it does marketing. Yeah. And to do marketing successfully, you have to understand your customer, which means you have to understand your operating environment. I never found a parallel in the military to that sort of thing. It's, it's idiosyncratic in the military, and this is where, you know, um, I've worked with some people like Zinni and, and Mattis, uh, um, uh, uh, Bob Scales, and, and, and you know, um, and there is some opening at, at various levels, uh, but it's far too little. Uh, and uh, for uh, again, I, uh, one of the interesting cases in Tom Ricks's new book is General Ordiona, uh, who very clearly got savaged in Ricks's first book, uh, Fiasco, uh, and very clearly Risk, Ricks has changed his opinion of Ordiona, but partially basis because Ordiona has fundamentally changed, and that's a reflection of the fact that Ordiona got really interested in you know what was going wrong and why it was going wrong, and my guess is he went back uh, um, considerably. Uh, uh, to history. Now, I think what, what actually pushed General Ordiono in the right direction was the fact his son got his arm blown off, um, which I think focused the father uh, on, on the issues involved. Uh, um, uh, but it is a very interesting case. Even three and four-star generals are not too old to learn. It's just they have got to be convinced. And this is where the irresponsibility of historians is really damaging and dangerous. I mean, the new uh, vice uh, commander, the three-star Admiral at Joint Forces Command, Admiral Harwood, uh, um, told me that uh, the greatest intellectual experience of his life was sitting in a class at the Naval War College with Michael Howard. There's a guy who's open to thinking about what kinds of questions we need to ask based on our sense of the past. But it's, a, it's an uphill struggle. I mean, Pete, Pete's fought it much longer and harder than I have, but... Uh, um, uh, uh, it's crucially important because otherwise you turn it over to the Owenses who, 
who um, get lots of young Americans killed. Any more questions? Yes. You talked about in the, in the piece how it took the American military and the bureaucracy things a billion dollars to solve the problem of IEDs, which are basically a, a artillery shells, <coughs> designs, electrical components, and a little bit of know-how. Is there any historical precedent that the U.S. military and the Defense Department today can look back to a military being able to, on the cheap, solve technological problems like that? Because you noted I think it was more like four billion dollars rather than a billion. Um, um, the, yeah, had we ever run across the uh, problem before? Yeah, they weren't called IED. The military loves acronyms right now, and so it's come up with uh, with um, what does the I stand for? I've forgotten. Improvised, yes, improvised explosive devices, uh, which in earlier wars, like uh, Vietnam, were called mines, or artillery shells or bombs that hadn't exploded that they Viet uh, Minh or Viet uh, Cong uh, brought or uh, to the side of a road and exploded. We, we've run into the problem before, and the answer in the past was good intelligence and knowledge of the locals, and and uh, if if you will, uh, a, a capacity to understand the fr framework within which you're operating, uh, to include taking the, the, the night uh, away from your opponents. Um, so we'd run into it in the past, and to spend $4 billion uh, on a problem that really has to do with, with uh, 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 tactics uh, and understanding the environment is only the Americans would be that stupid. Uh, and you're right. And one of the things we're going to confront in the 21st century is, is, is nobody is going to be as stupid as Saddam Hussein and, and, and try to oppose us conventionally. They're going to use other methods. And uh, other methods could include nuclear weapons. So that's the other frightening thing which I didn't mention. But um, um, nuclear warfare in the 21st century may be sooner than later. Um, uh, and uh, if you think about the breakup of Pakistan or the collapse of Pakistan to failed state, what happens to its nuclear weapons? Uh, and might not the Indians, as Pakistan collapsed, think about first strike removing most of the Pakistani nuclear weapons before they could be smuggled into India and exploded? Hey, for you young people, it's your world. I'm not going to be around too much longer. <laughs> Any more questions? Yes. Well, I think, I think the crucial thing is to read widely uh, in military history, but not just military history, history in general, um, uh, to include not just the Middle East, uh, because it's conceivable that the U.S. military forces will be engaged uh, in South America, uh, any number of other places. Um, uh, so the wider your choice of military history, uh, and I'm sure you have access to uh, Colonel Mansoor, Dr. Mansoor, um, you have my uh, bibliography, don't you, which you can hand out to anybody who wants to have it. Um, it's only got 1,200 books on it, um, uh, most of which I was willing to rate, including my top 25 picks uh, in military history. Um, 
uh, and the advantage of having such a big book list, it's divided into categories, uh, is that um, if you don't like one book, <laughs> you've got 11,099 others to go to. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, again, the issue is, if you look at a guy like uh, Tony Zinni, who is clearly one of the smartest people I've ever met, one of the best-read people in history, same thing for General Mattis, is they've been reading history, not just military history, but history. Uh, and culture and a uh, cultural studies and anthropology throughout their whole careers. Uh, and you do that, uh, as General Zinni was asked one time, his three-star general on the stage of Marine Corps uh, Command and Staff College, and some wise-ass major said, uh, General Zinni, uh, how many, uh, you know, how, how much reading do you uh, think uh, we should be doing? The Staff College clearly want to hear General Zinni say, well, you shouldn't be doing any reading, you should be playing golf, the way too many generals would say. General Zinni looked at the major and said, Major, he said, since I've come on active duty with the exception of my two tours in Vietnam, I have read a book a week. I'm working 75 hours a week at CENTCOM, and I'm still reading a book a week. How many books a week are you reading? <laughs> the major shrunk in his chair. I mean, I, I think that's the kind of, 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 of reply because, you know, it's not readings, oh, I'm going to Afghanistan, I better read 10 books. Um, it's a consistent self-education program because what you've gotten at Ohio State, whether it be uh, at the bachelor's level or at uh, the master's level or at the Ph.D. level, is only the beginning of your education. And you've got to continue it yourself, even if you were to become a professor at Yale. Yes? That's, that, I think, is the fundamental problem, and I don't have an answer. I don't think there's any easy solution. I think part of it is education. Part of it is uh, judging people's uh, and their progression in their career by their intellectual potential as, uh, and performance as well as their academic performance. And one of the things I would definitely recommend going back to, every single first world and most second world militaries, like for example India and China, um, to get into staff college you have to pass an examination. And uh, I think we should have examinations and far smaller groups uh, going to staff colleges and those people should represent if they have, if the Army or the Marine Corps or the Air Force has been right in picking them as the best officers on the basis of their efficiency reports, then they should also prove that they have the intellectual capacity to be something more than just a company commander. Because um, there's some dynamite company commanders out there who uh, will make lousy four-star generals. And some of them have made it to four-star rank. Of course, we've gone exactly the other way in the Army. Yes, so everybody. Yes. I would fix that if I were Secretary of the Army. Any more questions? Yes. I think certainly um, Jim and I, in writing this piece, felt that peacekeeping missions may be extraordinarily important to pre prevent some much worse uh, conflict from breaking out. Um, the idea that somehow uh, the Kosovo uh, 
um, a Bosnian thing was a bad thing for the U.S. military to get involved in, reflected, uh, if you will, a stupidity. I mean, it's very clear. I mean, the sort of there is still people writing that the Europeans could could present a threat to us down the line. Hell, they couldn't even, you know, line up in terms of the Serbian threat. So we had to get in there. Um, but peacekeeping, I think, is absolutely uh, uh, one of the roles that are going to be out there because, in fact, if they're done right in the right places, they'll prevent much worse conflicts from breaking out. But, again, that's not popular. I think it's much more popular in the U.S. Army and Marine Corps than it used to be. Um, I think a recognition of what we've seen in... Uh, uh, if we'd been prepared to do real peace enforcement in Iraq in summer 2003, I think we would have confronted an insurgency, but a much less violent, dangerous insurgency. Actually, once you've been shot at, peacekeeping looks pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Any more questions? Thank you all for coming. I appreciate it. Why I am the way I am because I learned everything from him. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>